Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? We good? I got to ask that one more time. I'm a little hopped up on caffeine this morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Awesome. Well, I know I can speak for the whole staff when I say that we love having Leah around. It's been a blast even these past couple months. So thank you for being here and being a part of this community. Um, So full disclosure, I was actually not supposed to be here this morning. Some of you guys know our teaching pastor, David Dorner. And if you're friends with him on Facebook, you know that him and his wife decided to have a baby three weeks early. So we are celebrating with them, but if you've ever had a newborn, you know it's the most peaceful, relaxing week of your life, right? No, it is chaotic and crazy and exciting and fun, and we are celebrating uh, what God is doing in their family of three now. And so I'm stepping in for him this morning, and I am excited for where we're going to go. And so as we get started this morning, uh, like Leah said, my name is Brad and I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. I work very closely with John and with Brendan and with the team here at Center and we just love each other. We love working together. So as we get started, we're going to conclude our series this morning called Crash, all about when relationships collide. And I want to start just by telling you that I have always had a strange fascination with dominoes. And not the, like, failing pizza chain dominoes, even though pizza sounds really good. I've always been fascinated with those little, like, wood plastic things with dots on them that you can't really explain what they're actually used for. And and there's so many different things that you can do with dominoes, right? Like, have you ever seen those elaborate displays that are full of, like, different colors and, and they'll knock just a couple down and then outward from that one point, things will just spread. And this beautiful, like, display of dominoes just kind of falls over. Or there's a lot of different games that you can play with dominoes um, that are a lot of fun. But one thing that I learned recently about dominoes that absolutely fascinated me is something called the domino effect. And maybe you're familiar with this, this idea, this concept, but basically what it is is that a domino, in theory, can knock down another domino that's uh, one and a half times its size. Right? So you have a two-inch domino, which can knock down a three-inch domino which can knock down a four and a half inch domino, which can knock down, you get the point, I don't know the math from there. But the idea is that what something that starts really, really small and insignificant, a two inch domino, can have massive effects. In fact, what's really, really crazy about this is just 29 dominoes into this sequence, the dominoes can knock down a domino the size of the Empire State Building. Over 1,200 feet tall, just 29 dominoes, starting with a two-inch domino. And the reason that I tell you this, the reason I tell you about the domino effect is because there is something in our relationships that acts almost identically to the domino effect, that starts really, really small and can compound and become really big before we know it. And that thing is our words, our words to each other, our words about each other can start and can feel like this two-inch domino, but before we know it, they have had so many different effects that expands so far beyond just a conversation between two people, specifically gossip. Gossip often feels just like an innocent conversation between two people. And before you know it, it's a conversation between four people and six people. Before you know it, it's just one little compromise of integrity that kind of multiplies itself and expands and feels kind of out of control really, really quickly. And sometimes I don't know that we realize how pervasive gossip is in our lives, like how deep down it is rooted in our daily conversations. Gossip can take many different forms. 
It can take the form of just sharing a concern with somebody about somebody else. A concern with no real intent to act or go to that person directly. Gossip can take the form of the meeting after the meeting, right? Like where you go out for, to the bar with your coworkers and it's just endless talking about somebody who's not there. Gossip can take the form of prayer requests in the church. Have you ever been a part of a small group meeting where the prayer request time just goes a little too long and you end up just talking about each other? Like my brother's cousin's dog's uncle, I saw him having a beer at Applebee's the other night. We should really pray for his soul. I don't know why I went southern with that. I'm not a good accent person. But the point is, gossip is so pervasive. And it's so damaging. And the reality, the ugly and scary truth about gossip is that gossip absolutely destroys relationships. Gossip can get out of control. And before we know it, it has left a cataclysmic wake of just ugliness in its path if we're not careful with it. It's a very scary, very real reality that many of us live in. And so as we get started today, I want you to just think, because I think this issue touches every single one of us. How have you specifically in your life been affected by gossip? Maybe as you think through that question, there's, there's a name of a person that comes to mind. Maybe there's a relationship that you've been a part of that's been destroyed because of gossip. Maybe you've internalized and believed things about yourself because of the ugly cycle of gossip. Maybe you've believed that you're worthless or that you're not good for anything or that you're stupid and you've internalized words that people have said about you. What I know is that gossip touches every single one of our lives. And so we're going to engage in some conversation this morning around the issue of gossip. And because we know that this touches every single one of us, I just want to say as we get started that this is a place where we journey together in this issue. That if you've struggled with gossip or if you've walked through it or been a victim of it, know that this is a house of grace. This is a house where we are all in this together and where we are going to journey together through this. And so if you've been with us for the last couple weeks, you know that we've been in Ephesians chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, right at the end of the chapter today. And as we dive into Paul's words here to the church in Ephesus, the question that we're going to ask today is how do we stop this ugly cycle of gossip? How do we be the ones who put a stop to the conversations, the little white lies and the little white truths that are so easy to share and spread about other people? Paul gives us some really clear answers here in the text this morning. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. Paul says this, Only let a little unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. It's not what he says, is it? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
And so starting in verse 29 there, Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. The adjective in the Greek for unwholesome literally can be translated as rotten or worthless. Paul is explicitly talking about gossip here. He's saying, don't let any rotten or worthless talk that spreads more rottenness come out of your mouths. Like, don't let that be a part of you. Don't let this this worthless and this ugly conversation about people and towards people come out of your mouths. Don't let that happen between you. Paul goes on to say that, that there's a contrast. He says, only use words that actually build other people up. Only use words that speak life. One commentary I read said, let your talk be saturated with the grace of God. Like, let every interaction that you have with each other be radiating God's grace and his love to one another. Paul doesn't just say, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but he offers this contrast of life-giving, people-affirming talk that's supposed to mark the life of a Christian. You see, I think there's, there's a lie that, that I know I've believed, and I think it's seeped into the American church a little bit. And the lie is that being an overly critical person about everything is a good thing, right? Like, when I engage critically with things or I'm critical of other people, that's what makes me smart or observant or astute. But the reality is there's a difference between being overly critical and critical thinking. Those are two very different things. Being overly critical of people is actually, and and I'm, hear me on this, I am guilty of this. Being overly critical of other people, that's just laziness. That's not the stuff of the kingdom of God. That is just, it's not intelligent to be overly critical of everybody all the time. And yet, that's so often how I engage with other people, and that's so often how I think so many of us in the church engage with other people. We have opinions, and we have conflict, and we have disagreements, and it leads to this ugly web of gossip and slander about other people. What would your life look like in one year from now if you made a conscious active effort to take these words of Paul extremely seriously in your life? What would it look like if, if your words were marked by building other people up, by encouraging other people, by speaking life and letting your words be saturated with God's grace? What would your family look like if you made that conscious effort? What would your what would your place of employment look like? How different would you look from your coworkers if you were the type of person that was only there to speak life about and to other people? What would this community, this church look like if we made a conscious effort to only speak life to each other and about each other? Now, here's, here's not what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying you're not going to have conflicts or disagreements. Right? We're not talking about engaging or, or withdrawing from conflict altogether. We're talking about assuming the best in each other. We're talking about moving through these conflicts and speaking life even in the midst of disagreeing with each other or having differing opinions. Paul goes on in verse 30 here, and he says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our words actually make the Spirit of God sad. 
when we're overly critical, when we let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, the text is really clear here that our words actually grieve the Spirit of God. And notice here how Paul says it grieves the Spirit, not just the Son or the Father, but the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one here among us. The Spirit of God is the one who binds us to each other. It's the Spirit who empowers us, who equips us, who advocates for us, and it actually breaks his heart when we use our words to tear each other down, when we tear other people down. And so this isn't just about destroying relationships that we have with each other. It actually diminishes the role of the Spirit in our church when we partake in unwholesome talk and unwholesome words. And so let me show you this, this dynamic kind of played out in a practical way. We're going to have some fun here. So I brought a little diagram here for you guys, if you have it up there. And there's some familiar people on that diagram. So we're going to walk through this together here. And yes, I made Brendan the bad guy in my illustration, because it's my illustration and I can do that. So this is triangulation, right? So many of you are probably familiar with this concept. So Brendan over here, let's say I invite Brendan to a party. It's going to be a really good Halloween party this week, right? And, and he says, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll make it. Maybe I'll show up. And he doesn't actually show up. And this makes me really, really mad at Brendan because it was a really good party. And instead of going to Brendan to talk about it, who do I go to? I go to John to talk about it. John doesn't have anything to do with this situation. John is kind of an independent party of this. My issue is between me and Brendan here. We are the ones having the conflict, and yet I take my problem to somebody who can do absolutely nothing about it. Why do I do this? Well, I think there's a couple reasons why we do this. Number one, it's easier. It's a lot easier to talk about somebody than to somebody. Number two, I think it's easy to do this because maybe it fuels kind of a false sense of connection between me and John. Maybe it makes me feel closer to John when we can kind of badmouth and bash Brendan together. But then what happens in this scenario is John goes right back to Brendan and tells him how mad I am at him. And so now all of a sudden there's this triangle of relational conflict and tension that would have never been there had I just gone to Brendan in the first place and brought my issue to him. Now here's what's even scarier about this, and here's what this diagram doesn't show, is that I may just go to John and Brendan, but this diagram doesn't show that I may not just go to John. I might go to other people and talk to them about my frustration with Brendan. And John might go to other people and talk to them about my frustration with Brendan. And Brendan might do the same. And now all of a sudden, what was one triangle is this web of ugly relational tension that didn't, wouldn't exist in the first place had I just had that hard conversation to begin with. And if you're anything like me, when, you've, when you think about this played out in your life, maybe you've played all three people in this triangle at one point or another. I know I have before. I think just back to this past year where I was given some information about a friend of mine. And instead of kind of holding that in and not talking about that, I decided to share that with one person who wasn't involved. And that person decided to share it with somebody else, who shared it with somebody else. Now all of a sudden my friends didn't trust me anymore. The, the words that I had said, there was all kinds of tension in these relationships. I couldn't get my words back in fast enough. All kinds of shame and regret and ugliness kind of resulted from my one small domino-sized decision to share something that wasn't mine to share. But what happened in that situation 
was that my friend who I had hurt actually had the courage to come to me and to say, you know what, Brad, I love you, but your words, they were not appropriate and they really hurt me. And and that friend came to me and we engaged in this conversation because where gossip-filled words can destroy relationships, grace-filled words can actually rebuild them. Grace-filled words can actually restore and rebuild and redeem what gossip and unwholesome talk destroys. And so I want to encourage you to be the type of person that doesn't allow a triangle of gossip to flourish in your life, but actually goes to the person, to the source, and navigates through conflict and walks through it, even though it's harder initially. Paul, in verse 31 here, going back to the text, he lists six things that he says to get rid of in the church here. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. List is right up there. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. Get rid of assuming the worst about other people. Get rid of having a need to have the last word, to one-up everybody all the time. Get rid of the need to spread both unnecessary lies and unnecessary truths about other people. Like, those things should not be a part of who we are as a church. There shouldn't be a hint of them. There shouldn't be a trace of them. I want to dig a little bit deeper into what Paul is saying here. I want to illustrate it for you this way. I have a grandpa, and my grandpa's name is Howard, and and we have been really close as I've grown up. And I remember he, he was a factory worker for GM over on Alpine, the old plant that was here, for his entire career. He got saved at a Billy Graham crusade, and he is someone that has been a living example of just kind of speaking life into me my entire life. He would have us cousins over as, as kids, and we would sleep over at his house, and he made the best from-scratch pancakes. I mean, he would literally drive to Traverse City to get the best maple syrup in the whole state and bring it back for us. I mean, I love my grandpa. But there are two things that I would always hear come out of his mouth every single time I saw him. Without fail, these two things would come out of his mouth. Number one, he said, Brad, I think you're going to be a pastor one day. He'd speak that over me every single time I'd see him, and he'd ask me how my faith is doing, how my walk with Jesus was doing, not in an accusatory way, but in a life-giving, life-affirming kind of way. And the second thing that he would tell me is, Brad, I am praying for you every single night before bed. I pray for you by name. What can I pray for you for? And you better believe that those words have drastically shaped who I am as a person, who I am as a follower of Jesus, because there is power in identity. There is power in life-giving, life-affirming words to shape identity. And so Paul is not just saying, don't do these things. Right? Like the message of the scriptures is never just do or don't do. That's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel and what Paul is really getting at here is know who you are. He spends three chapters in Ephesians building into the church in Ephesus saying this is who you are and this is who you are not. He says you are a chosen people. He says, you were dead in your sin and now you're alive in Christ. Your salvation did not come at no cost. 
He says you were once foreigners and strangers, but now you're citizens in God's kingdom. Paul, again and again and again through this letter, makes statements about the church's identity. This is who you are, and this is who you are not. And so his message isn't just do more or try harder or be better. His message is know who you are. Know who you are in Christ. Know your identity and live according to that. Let the presence of Jesus in you work through you and shape everything about you. That's Paul's message to Ephesus. It's not just do more or be better or try harder. That's the opposite of the gospel. It's let what Christ has done in you be so internalized in your life that almost like a coat taken off, you throw aside everything that doesn't resemble Jesus. That you throw off bitterness and anger, and rage, and slander, and malice, and brawling, that you put those things aside, they are no longer a part of who you are. And then once again, he gives the church a contrast here. He gives the church a different kind of way to live. And he said, if you want to go to that next one here, he says, be kind. Be compassionate. Forgive each other. How? In the same way that Jesus has forgiven you. Let your words and your actions and your hearts towards other people reflect the very words and actions and heart of Jesus himself. Guys, there is power in identity. And Paul is not just making commands. He is making statements of identity for the church that ring true just as much today as they did when he wrote these words in the first place. Church, know who you are. Know your identity in Christ. And let that inform the way you speak to each other. Let that inform the way you speak about each other. Let that flourish in every part of who you are. Because the reality is when we don't do this, when we don't speak life-giving words, when we use our words to tear other people down, we actually diminish the image of God in those people. We actually diminish the imago Dei that is inherent in every single person. James and Paul were crystal clear in the New Testament about the power of words. James says it this way. He says, on one hand, you're over here and you're singing praise to God. You're singing songs like reckless love and how great is our God. And yet on the other hand over here, you're using your words to tear down people that are made in his image. James says these two things are fundamentally incompatible with each other. These two things should not coexist in the same speech of a Christian. They have, they're, not, they're not compatible with each other. So the question we're asking today is, do your words bring life? Do they bring hope and do they bring healing to a world that desperately needs hope and healing and life? Do your words to your spouse bring life? Do your conversations with your spouse about other people bring life? Do your conversations about your coworkers and your boss, do they bring life and healing and encouragement? Do they reflect the very heart of Jesus? Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually prayed for you. And he prayed for Center Church. I don't know if you know that or not, but he had a simple, singular prayer for followers of his, future followers of his. 
The prayer is this, if you want to put it on the screen there. Jesus says the goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. Don't miss this next line here. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them, so they'll be as unified and together as we are. I in them and you in me, then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and loved them in the same way you loved me. Jesus is using words like you and me and I and them and them to the world. And as I kind of think about this, it feels like an entirely different kind of triangulation. That the Father in Jesus and Jesus in us is reflected to the world so that the world might know that we're his disciples, so that the world might know and experience the love of God. This is how high the stakes are for us being unified and for us being one and for us resisting gossip and slander about each other. You see, I said at the beginning that gossip destroys relationships, but I think the stakes are even higher than that in our lives. See, gossip actually hinders the spread of the gospel. Division and infighting and worthless and rotten words about each other actually hinders people from experiencing the love of God that they so desperately need. And so when we talk about crash, when we talk about relationships, the stakes are always higher than we might initially think. Yes, healthy and godly marriages are important. And yes, healthy workplaces and churches are important. But this goes beyond that. Jesus prayed that our unity would show the world how much the Father loves them. And when we don't do that, we actually create very real barriers for people experiencing the love of God. And so what do we do with all this? What do we do practically in our day-to-day lives to live this out? Well, Paul's really clear. The antidote to gossip and slander and malice And all of these bad things, it's encouragement. It's encouraging each other. It's building each other up and lifting each other up. And I don't know about you, but there are times where I will think encouragement. And and I don't know what disconnect exists there, but making it from my head to out of my mouth is challenging sometimes. Like speaking words of encouragement to other people can be hard sometimes, even if I may be thinking them. So the challenge today is don't let gossip and don't let slander and don't let words that tear people down be a part of your language, but encourage each other. Go out of your way to encourage each other all the time, out loud, because you are in Jesus, because we are the church that Jesus prayed for unity for, encourage each other all the time, out loud. I can't think of of any better way, the band's making their way up right now, I can't think of any better way than to to conclude this series than with communion. And as we think about this this concept of communion and the sacrifice that, that Jesus made for each and every one of us, Paul writes about communion. And he says this isn't just like an individual act. Yes, it's between you and God, but communion is also communal. Paul says don't partake in this sacrament, while there is division 
an unnecessary conflict among you. Paul says, engage in this with unity. Engage with this in a way that remembers and celebrates who Jesus is and what he has done for each and every one of us. You see, when we participate in communion, when we come to the Lord's table, this is a table of community. This is a table of remembering and anticipating and celebrating all that Jesus is. This is a table where we meet directly face to face with God and experience his grace in our lives. That is what this table represents. And so we're gonna enter into a time of worship together as a church. And, and before you come up here, before you partake in these elements, I wanna just challenge you to do something. Have a conversation with God and ask him to illuminate any relational division in your life. Ask him to convict you. Ask him to speak directly to you to say, is there anything that I need to work out with somebody else before I come to this table? And then we invite you to come forward during the song. And what we're going to do is you're just going to take the cracker and you're going to dip it in the juice and you're going to eat it. But as we do that, I want to read the words of Paul Jesus talks about on the night that he was betrayed at the Last Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, Paul says this. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This, this is the body of Christ broken for you and this is the blood of Christ shed for you so that you may know and experience all of his love for you so that you may live accordingly in your relationships with one another and with the world let's pray together and then we're going to sing